This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. How are you? Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. So I'm in a uh, really good mood. I don't know if I've said it much on the show, but um, I'm going to be a dad in in six weeks. A day less than six weeks. Um... So with Steph and I, we just we had a doula come by this morning. People, uh, it's about a thirty percent of people I tell that they they know what a doula is. So I'm not, and I didn't know what it was. Uh, but we were at the doctor's the other day, and the doctor said, uh, "So what role would you like to have in the birthing process, Mike?" And I said, "Uh, well, do I have to go? Do I have to?" I got a got a hit on the thigh. Um, and they were like, well, you know, you could be coaching her throughout it. And we both looked at each other, my wife and I, and we said, nah, that's not a good idea. So they recommend this doula who does, like, the soothing stuff, like, helps with what to do with the pillows and to breathe and to this and to that. And then I can just hold her hand and tell her she's doing great. Um, so anyway, we had the doula come by today, and uh, we're excited, and it made it all very real. And our uh, little boy is going to be here in a couple of weeks, pretty fired up for that. Uh, all right, let us talk about and start here today on our three-hour journey with education. So Trump, a couple days ago, going back to his old standby, uh, said we're going to come up with a fair but firm process. Fair but firm. I want to set the stage here with immigration just to make it clear that we're not talking about dreamers. Okay? And whatever that image puts in your mind. That's not who we're talking about here. And then in the next segment, I want to talk about deportation and what that has looked like in the past, guys, because it's been done before. So I'm going to tell you what it looked like when we did it, and you can decide if this is something that you think was a horrible black eye in our history or if it's something that we should absolutely do again as soon as possible. I will totally let you decide, but let's look at how it's already been done once before. And the level of success and all the rest. We'll do that in the next segment. But first, I want to start here. This is in our, one of our local channels here in San Diego. Uh, as I'm talking to you now, I am, I don't know, 15 miles from the border. A couple of days ago, I went to go, it's a different story, uh, but went to Donovan Prison, which is 100 yards from the border, right? So I saw the border fence in Mexico three days ago. Um, so pretty close to the border here in San Diego is what I'm getting at. Actually, it's the busiest border crossing in the world is uh, San Diego with Tijuana. Anywho, so this is a local news report with the National Border Patrol Council, Chris Har- Harsey, uh, specifically. He's, he's the speaking on behalf of border agents. His first point here is there is no wall on our border. There never will be a wall. We have fences. And in this entire report, they keep saying, some say we need to build a wall. Okay, what well, they mean, Trump. 
Uh, but here's the deal with this real quick. Uh, there, there will be no wall. No one's ever going to build a wall, ever. Trump's not going to build a wall. He knows he's not going to build a wall. Rick Perry, who's a Trump supporter, said there will never be a wall. Uh, there's no wall. It was an exaggeration to get attention. And, and it's fine. <laughs> but just know there will never be a wall. But it's not really even the wall that matters. I mean, if you, if you want to say that Trump was using a metaphor, okay, we can dig that deep if you want. I think he was just getting attention. But the wall is the wall's not the most important thing. And this report here will explain this. So the reporter just got done talking about how the Border Patrol says they need more agents. Uh, clip 1110, please. That's not the only thing that needs fixing. Even if thousands of agents were hired and every illegal is captured, the policy from the top is letting them go as fast as they are caught. When we ask people why they're coming here, the answer is invariably the same. And it's not the president. They actually say Obama said it's okay to come. So there's a belief that they will remain. And the belief is true. As a result of this belief or policy, immigrants detained in the U.S. are quickly released. As long as they claim political asylum, they are processed and let go on this side of the border. In a way, we're just a welcoming crew. We're a Walmart welcoming crew. Um, It's really disheartening to our guys to know we have control of the border, but all you have to do now is say you have a credible fear and you're going to be released. So no matter how many fences, cameras, or agents say the right thing and get a free pass back to the streets of the U.S. We're going to take them to the, uh, the trolley stop at the San Ysidro uh, trolley, and we're going to let them go. That's incredible. Uh, sorry, the San Ysidro trolley stop is the last stop uh, on the San Diego trolley line. Right, It's right at the border. So I can hop on the trolley from from where I am right now. I can I can be at the, the border in you know, eight minutes okay, on the trolley. And it's right there. And then you get off the trolley and you walk across the border in there. And so, I mean, are you, are you following? So our border agents are like a Walmart welcoming crew. Right? Now, we can talk about if a wall is a good thing, a bad idea, whatever. But the point of this piece, and I would agree, that it's not so much about a wall or a fence. Although, yes... It's also about people, border agents, but it's even more than that. It's policy. That is first and foremost. Because if we changed our policy, then we wouldn't need so many border agents, honestly. And if we changed our policy, then we wouldn't need so many fences or a wall to begin with. Because the policy is run across the border, find a border agent, run to them, Say the word asylum, they will pick you up, feed you, clothe you, and drop you off at the trolley stop on our side of the border. That is a messed up policy. I don't care how many uh, fences or walls he got. That's a screwed up policy. All right, gets even worse, 11-11. That is the only thing that prevents you from coming into the United States. Which is nothing. Which is nothing. Since then, another layer of fencing has been added, closing up huge gaps where people would simply walk into the United States. These days, some of those people are even scarier than the drug cartels. Not just one or two, but lots of people that mean harm to this country are slipping in. Everything from criminals to terrorists. In fact, we don't really know who's being caught and released. Many of these people work off of a script, and they say the magic words, asylum. Every day has to be by the hundreds, if not close to a thousand, every single day. In the end, it's a matter of politics from the very top. 
the message is out. One of the things we actually absolutely have to have is the President of the United States and the Secretary of Homeland Security to come out and say, look, this is a treasured system. It's being abused. It's going to stop today. Yeah, but uh, that's the way it is right now. And the word is out. You remember that thing in Central America where they're actually putting out flyers telling people, come to America, Obama is welcoming you. And that's why we had that influx of Central Americans. And as he told me, these days, they don't run from the Border Patrol. They run to the Border Patrol because the Border Patrol takes care of them under our current policy. If you need food, if you need blankets, medicine. There was one story that he told me today. That there's a guy who snuck over here. He got arrested, said, I'm, I'm from Mexico, but I have a heart condition. They brought him to the hospital. He is going to get free heart surgery here in the United States after sneaking across the border. Mm-hmm. So we take care of these people like they're our own children. So in a sense, they're rewarded for crossing the border. They are rewarded. That is exactly what he is telling me. And, you know, and, and they don't have to run. Because we'll take care of them. They even, he even went so far to say, as when they do ship them back over the border, mm-hmm. we send food with them and blankets with them so they're okay on that side of the border. So, I mean, there's really mm-hmm. this, this, this policy of, you know, you, back in the day, right, mm-hmm. they would take them and they would take them on a bus across the other side right. of the border and drop them right. off. Now they're dropping them off at the San Ysidro bus station on this side of the border. Can mm-hmm. you make any sense out of that? Wow. No. It's, Definitely an eye-opening report. Right. And you can see the frustration of the uh, agents. The too. agents are frustrated, and they're frustrated to the very top, mm-hmm. and that is President Obama. And, of course, what he said about Congress, that money has been approved for 2,000 new mm-hmm. agents. They just haven't spent it on the agents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This Makes stuff has no all been approved. sense so, whatsoever. Yeah, your head spins when you hear right. these things. Yeah. And so we thought we'd bring yeah. a little head spinning. Mm, I thought that. Amazing. <clears throat> Amazing. So we... we they run to the border agent, and then we drop them off at the at the trolley stop on our side of the border. All right, now I want to share a story coming up next about how we used to deport people and what that looked like. Because you heard the reporter there say, uh, you know, back in the day, we would drop people back off on the other side of the border. Not only that, well, I'll stop there. I'll tell you next. Now, I started off saying that this isn't about dreamers. Okay. Uh, and it's not even about Mexicans. <laughs> the U.S. South Command, I'm sure you heard this, U.S. South Command is part of the Department of Defense. So this isn't like a right-wing hate rag or think tank even or something. These uh, This group does intel in Central and South America. Uh, I'll quote so you don't think I'm making it up. Networks that specialize in smuggling individuals from regions of terrorist concern, mainly from the Afghan-Pakistan region, are indeed a concern for Southcom and other interagency security partners who support our country's national security. Okay, they don't come, like the DOD is not going to come out randomly and and throw something out there that may or may not be true, right? Like that that's they're saying 30,000 terrorists or, or immigrants from countries of terrorist concern have entered last year. 30,000. And the policy with them would be the exact same as a policy of anyone else. Come across the border, say asylum, they drop you off on our side of the border, and you're free to go. That's wild. So before we build walls, or even at the same time, let's just not forget that policy needs to change first. And then proper enforcement of the policy, of course. All right, we'll tell you what uh, deportation used to look like in the United States. You decide if this is something that was horrible and should never be done again, or if this is what we need to do as soon as possible. We'll leave that up to you, but we'll tell you the history next. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. 
You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. This is Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders, how are you? I want to share this story here. I'm going to share it without comment. Okay, are we clear about uh, about my approach here? I just want this to be on the, on the same page. I'm not saying we should do this again. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it again. I'm not saying it's great. I'm not saying it's horrible. So I'm just throwing this out there and, and just ask that you do not project your opinion of this on me because that happens all the time. <laughs> right? I'll say I'll, I'll do it, especially with history. Here's something that happened before. And you say, if you don't like it, then you assume that I do like it. And then I get all this hate mail or I can literally share the same story and someone does like it and they assume I don't like it and then send me all this hate mail. So I'm not saying I like it or don't like it. And when you're angry, for whatever reason, project it on something else. So I'm just going to tell you that this is what was done before. So we'll do the short of this here. Their uh, border, the border, the border, Mexico and America, it's always been very porous. So in the early 1900s, a lot of Mexicans started to come across the border and work in uh, the fields in America. Now, Mexico didn't like this because at the time, the president, uh, Diaz, he wanted the Mexicans to work in Mexico. All the good laborers were leaving to America, and it was so bad that crops were rotting in the field in Mexico because all the laborers were coming to America. So at first, it was Mexico who wanted more border security. It was, it was Mexico who wanted to build a wall to keep Mexicans in Mexico. Weird, right? So in 1942, our country started what was or our countries started what was called the Bracero program. Bracero, uh, Spanish for uh, someone who works with their arms. I think arms is brazos or something. So Bracero, someone who works with their arms. Now we could talk about the Bracero program for an hour, but both countries liked it because American farmers got the laborers, right? Our farmers in Texas, California, some other states. But they were short-term contracts. So after the contract is over, we sent them back to Mexico. And Mexico liked that because they wanted the Mexicans there. So it was 1942. After the war, the Bracero program broke down. And one of the reasons it broke down is because too many Mexicans wanted in. We just couldn't keep keep up with the program. There were better wages here, better conditions. We had more machines in America. So working in the field was a lot easier than working in Mexico. So it was just more appealing to work here. So President Eisenhower came in. And this is how this went down. So Eisenhower wrote a letter to Senator Fulbright of Arkansas. So this senator just proposed a um, th- th- that we have a new commission 
that finds corrupt government officials who accept gifts in return for special treatment. And this was just general. Just gen- it had nothing to do with the border at the time. It was generally this senator said, gosh, there's a lot of government officials who are on the take. And we should start a commission to find out who they are and root them out. So the new president, Eisenhower, sent to the senator an article from the New York Times, and he highlighted this one paragraph. The paragraph said, the rise in illegal border crossings by Mexican wetbacks to a current rate of more than a million cases a year has been accompanied by a curious relaxation in ethical standards, extending all the way from the farmer of this con- the farmer farmer exploiters of this contraband labor to the highest levels of the federal government. So Eisenhower saw this uh, this uh, senator and this commission that he wanted, and then the Eisenhower saw this New York Times article and said, "Whoa, whoa hold on, maybe maybe there's a lot of uh, uh, corrupt officials on the border." Right? I mean, that's what the New York Times says, right? Million cases a year, and 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 we have curious relaxation in ethical standards all the way up to the highest levels of the federal government. So sent that off to the Senate, right? So what was this curious relaxation of ethical standards? So farmers and ranchers ignored all the laws about hiring Mexican laborers. There are about 3 million of them, uh, Mexican laborers. And part of it was because Mexicans paid, uh, were paid about half of what the Americans were paid. But these farmers and ranchers, they had connections with U.S. officials who were there to oversee immigration enforcement. Right? They paid them off. They paid off the officials to not arrest or deport anyone. Well, Ike didn't like this. So in 1954, he appointed a retired general as the new INS commissioner. INS is uh, Immigration and Naturalization Service. I think that's the yes. Immigration and Nationalization. So the first thing that the, gen- that the general did is he found all the corrupt officials and he moved them to different states. Right? Who's on the take? All right, good. You're now being moved to uh, Maine. <laughs> then it was the beginning of Operation Wetback. So they called it. 750 agents had a goal of apprehending 1,000 laborers a day. It's a lot. Within 45 days, 50,000 immigrants were caught in California and Arizona alone. And another 500,000 left voluntarily, knowing that they would be arrested just a matter of time. In Texas, 80,000 were taken into custody and over half a million left voluntarily. That's just in 45 days. Now, here's the crazy part. Today, as you just heard in that last segment, when we deport someone in San Diego, we drop them off on our side of the border at the trolley stop. So at the very least, people are like, uh, can we at least drop them off on their side of the border? Well, during Operation Wetback, not only do we drop them off on their side of the border, we put them on buses and trains and boats and sent them deep into Mexico. There are two ships in particular, the Emancipation and the Mercurio. And they, they uh, sailed to, or they set off to Veracruz, Mexico. It's about 500 miles south. 500 miles, that's the distance of, uh, from San Diego to San Francisco. And that was no bueno for the people being deported because now they're in this strange city far from their family anyway, right? So if they were in Tijuana and they come to San Diego and then we ship them to Veracruz, like, well, like, <laughs> so they're annoyed at that. And by the late 1950s, just a few years into Operation Wetback, illegal immigration dropped by 95%. And it didn't take many border agents back then. No, obviously a different time, but it only took 750 agents, 300 Jeeps, seven airplanes, and they apprehended over a million people in a year. 
right, the numbers I gave you a second ago were in 45 days. They apprehended over a million people in a year. Ten years later, the program stopped, and that was that. Now, things have changed, you know, in the last 60 years or so, but take that for what you, what you like. You know, a lot of people say today, oh, it's going to cost so much money. Well, I mean, and so many agents. Well, 750 agents. That's all that it was. And then the point where you only arrest and deport this many and the rest will self-deport, if you will. That's happened before in America. You decide if that was a black eye in our history or if it should happen again. That's your choice. By the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to Mike Slater. Looking up at CNN right now, it says Trump set to attend Iowa's roast and ride event. That sounds like fun. Whether or not Trump is going to be there at all, that sounds delicious. And like a rodeo of sorts is going to take place while eating delicious food. Hungry. Uh, Jill Stein. Jill Stein, of all people, gave an interview the other day on CNN. She's the Green Party candidate. And like, kind of went after Hillary quite a bit and brought up things that no one else ever brings up. I don't have the clip here in front of me, but it was, you know, she brought up her corruption, brought up pay to play, brought up the Clinton Foundation, brought up uh, emails, brought up uranium. When's the last time you heard Clinton and uranium? I want to share that story here for a minute because I think this one's really important. I think this is the easiest to understand um. Well, that's not true. There's an, I think the Bahrain one is pretty easy, too. I'll do that one next. So there's the two easiest stories about the Clinton Foundation, understand. The two easiest pay-to-play stories. And I think this one's uranium. And I want to bring this up because if anyone else does on TV or hopefully at a debate, you know what they're talking about. Because this here's what's going to happen. Back it up. We got the debate coming up in less than a month, September 25th. It's the first one. This is going to be the most important event of the entire campaign, this first debate. It's going to be Super Bowl numbers. There'll be 100 million people that watch this. All right, there's about 30 million people who watch the Republican debate. I don't know how many watch the Dems, but let's say you know, let's say another 30 mil. Um, and you're going to get double that with people who are just kind of casually paying attention. But like this will be the event. So this, this is huge. And the numbers are not going to be as big the next few event, uh, debates so this is and like really it's not even the debate it's the first three minutes of the debate are the most important but anyway if uranium comes up you need to know exactly what that means because the person you're watching it with will not and they're only going to have 30 seconds before the buzzer goes off and they're not going to be able to explain it and you know the moderator's not going to explain it so you got to know what it is that's number one number two when people talk about the clinton foundation i have a lot of friends who have been like well what's you know what's what are they talking about what's the big deal Here's your go-to story. So there's a bunch of ways I could describe this, um, different levels of detail. But the more detail, the more confusing it gets. So uh, I'll try to do a a more bare-boned version, but I want to make sure we get enough detail where, you know, I'm not making it up to. So there's this guy. His name's Frank uh, Giestra. We'll call him Frank. Canadian guy. He owned a mining company named Eurasia, U-R- Asia, U-R-A-S-I-A. 
In September 2005, he visited Kazakhstan with Bill Clinton. Okay, they traveled together because why not? And when they were both there, this guy won a major uranium mining deal. A few months later, he donated $31.3 million to the Clinton Foundation. Now, it's worth noting that foreigners, and a Canadian is a foreigner, even though we like Canada, still a foreigner. Foreigners can't donate money to American politicians. Actually, the DA right now in San Diego, her name's Bonnie Dumanis, she's in big trouble because a couple of years ago she ran for mayor, and it turns out she may have accepted money from a Mexican billionaire. Can't do that. So Frank can't donate money to an American politician, but Frank can donate money to an American foundation, even if the foundation is run by a former president and a current secretary of state who everyone knows is also going to run for president. You could still do that. Okay, so that's 2005. 2007, Eurasia merges with a South African mining company, and they changed the name to Uranium One. This South African company now starts buying uranium mining rights in America. Okay, so this is where it gets a little more complicated. But you with me so far? There's, a, there's the mining company in Russia. It's a state-run company. So it's run by Vladimir Putin. Rosatom, I think it. Rosatom, I forgot how to pronounce it. Rosatom, Rosatom, something like that. But it doesn't matter. So this company, Putin's company, wanted to make a smaller investment in Uranium One. So Uranium One and a bunch of people connected to it donate $8.65 million to the Clinton Foundation. The next year, Putin takes a 17% ownership stake in Uranium One. The next year, investors give millions of more dollars to the Clinton Foundation. Now, here's where it gets here. This is the important part. June 2010, Putin wants to take now a majority ownership of Uranium One. Now, keep in mind here, this company, Uranium One, owns mining rights to uranium in America. And Putin now wants to take over control of this company. A majority ownership. But because it's uranium, the State Department needs to sign off on it. Now, who runs the State Department? Hillary Clinton. Now, at the exact same time, Bill Clinton was paid $550,000 for a speech in Moscow at a Russian investment bank that was doing this deal. They were involved with the Uranium One deal. At the exact same time. Four months later, the State Department signs off on the deal. And on January 2013, three years after that, Putin takes complete 100% control over Uranium One. So now Vladimir Putin has control over 20% of all the uranium in the United States of America. Ta-da! So think about this. Bill Clinton's friend gets rich. Okay, the guy, Frank, the Canadian guy, who they travel to Kazakhstan together. He gets rich because he gets all these uranium deals and he merges his company and then sells his company. So he wins. The Clinton Foundation makes tens of millions of dollars in the process. Over, in the end, it ends up being over $100 million. The Clintons themselves make millions. Not only you know half a million dollar speech there, half a million dollar speech there, but also the Clinton Foundation. I mean, that's, that's their slush fund, right? So they're making millions. And in the end, Putin ends up with 20% of our uranium mining. What? 
Now, if this is ever brought up, which hopefully it will be, Clinton's going to say, and we heard a little bit of this yesterday, actually. She's going to say, oh, the Clinton Foundation? Oh, I know. We are so proud of the charity work that we've done at the Clinton Foundation. Yesterday, one of her spokesperson people came out and said, listen, uh, the Clinton Foundation deals with half of, uh, this is like something, half of uh, people who have AIDS around in Africa. So if you're against the Clinton Foundation, you're against helping people who have AIDS. That was the, that was the gist of it. So that's what that's what that's now the that's now their line. That's their official line. That if you're against anything that I just said right now, you you want people to die of AIDS. Now, do you think for one second that the owner of Uranium One, who was looking for permission to sell their company to Vladimir Putin, do you think for a second that that guy and everyone else who, around it who donated to the Clinton Foundation, do you think that they are truly concerned? about the literacy of women in the third world. Do you you think they are incredibly passionate about giving medicine to people with AIDS in Africa? Like that, that's their cause. And they're so passionate about that. They decided just happenstance to give their money to the Clinton foundation over any other charity that does the same thing and uh, definitely does a better job of it. Right. They're like this Frank guy in Canada is so passionate about the Clinton Foundation's causes that they donated tens of millions of dollars randomly at the same time they were looking for permission from the State Department to sell their company to Vladimir Putin. That's what we're supposed to believe. That's insane. And there's no way the American people are that stupid to believe that. But they try that excuse anyway. Maybe we are. I should say this whole story is from the New York Times. I mean, this isn't. The New York Times article here with this information. Another thing, these donations were not publicly disclosed by the Clintons. This all had to be uncovered. This is wildly illegal, off the charts corrupt, and on a scale that the world truly has never seen. I can't express it enough. It is on a scale that the world has never seen. And she might be president. If she's willing to give Putin 20% of the uranium reserves in America, what else is she willing to do as commander-in-chief for money and for power? one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. So the Bahrain story real quick. It's a lot quicker. This one may be easier to understand. Um, The crown prince of Bahrain donates $32 million to the Clinton Foundation. The head of the Clinton Foundation calls up Hillary Clinton and asks if she can have a meeting with him. They have a meeting. And then Hillary Clinton approves a $630 million arms sale to Bahrain. See how that works? 
I mean, that, that's pretty simple. So Crown Prince in Bahrain gives $32 million to the Clinton Foundation, which is like a pittance. Gets a meeting with Hillary Clinton. She then approves a $630 million arms sale. That is called pay to play. That one's probably the easiest. Forget about the uranium. The uranium story is good. Not good. But it's important to know just because it's uranium and Putin. But the pay to play, I think that's the easiest story of all to share. Um, I want to play this clip here of Hillary. Um, Flip, do we have 1119? I want to play this because this is important to to um, listen to liars and try to pick up their tells. So everyone has tells for when they lie. And Hillary uses uh, a bunch of them. And this is for everyone. I'm not picking on her. I'm just an example. Um, so Hillary has four in particular. Uh, one of the, the first one is her voice gets higher. And again, not just her. This is almost everyone. Um, her voice gets higher. And she does this thing that Obama does too where she laughs. So it's when you chuckle in the middle of a serious conversation about a serious topic. It's a pretty good tell that that's a lie. And the example we, we give when we share this is, um, you know, if a wife goes to a husband and says, are you cheating? Are you, are you cheating on me with that girl? And the husband goes, what? <laughs> what? No, no. Right? Like, like, that's not an appropriate time to laugh. Okay. So you'll hear that in this clip. The second thing, it's called a non-contracted denial. So People who lie use formal language rather than informal language. We'll talk about that in a second. Third thing, when someone's going to lie, they say something like, to start off the sentence, it's something like, well, let me tell you. Or the important thing to know is, or they'll often do, if they're being interviewed by, let's say, Anderson Cooper, well, Anderson, right? Like if they use the person's name, it's a pretty good chance that there's a lie that's following. And the fourth thing is qualifying language. So when people throw in a bunch of unnecessary words, they do that to distance themselves from it, right? To fr- from the lie, from it all. So the more unnecessary language that's added is their effort in doing that. So uh, let's play this clip here and see if you notice uh, those four examples. Uh, I'll just give you a hint right in the beginning. She says, well, look. That's a sign that a lie is coming. See if you can spot them all. 1119. Let me ask you, according to the New York Times report, you told FBI investigators that former Secretary of State Colin Powell advised you to use a personal email account. His response to that this past weekend was reportedly, quote, her people are trying to pin it on me. And that, quote, the truth is she was using, talking about the private email server, for a year before I sent her a memo telling her what I did. Uh, he's talking about the private email account. Did you say that to FBI investigators and to Secretary Powell, right? Were you using this private email server prior to your conversation with him? Well, look, I have the utmost respect for Secretary Powell, and he was incredibly gracious and helpful uh, after I was nominated and before I took the job. I appreciated the time he took when I was preparing uh, to become secretary, and I valued his advice. I'm not going to relitigate in public uh, my private conversations with him. I've been asked many, many questions in the past year about emails. And what I've learned is that when I try to explain uh, what happened, uh, it can sound like I'm trying to excuse what I did. And there are no excuses. I want people to know uh, that the decision to have a single email account was mine. I take responsibility for it. I've apologized for it. 
I would certainly do differently if I could. Uh, but obviously, I'm grateful the Justice Department concluded there was no basis to pursue this matter further. And I believe the public uh, will be and is considering my full record and experience as they uh, consider their consider choice, their for, choice president. for president. Okay, so I got a minute. Let's run down those. Uh, she did all four of those tells. Started off with the, well, look. After that, a bunch of unnecessary detail and words, right? Stuff like, I have the utmost respect for Secretary Powell, and he was incredibly gracious, and I appreciated the time he took. Like, that's all superfluous nothing to create distance from the actual question. I mean, you're 10 seconds into her answer, and you forget what the actual question was. That's why she does that, creates distance. Um, And by the way, she never answered the question. Um, Oh, she chuckled. I pointed out the chuckle. And what was the fourth one? Oh, yeah, formal language. So she says stuff like, I'm not going to relitigate in public my private conversations with him. Or there's no basis to pursue this matter further. Like, no one talks like that. No one, no one, no one would use that in a sentence in normal conversation. If she wasn't lying, she would say, no, I did not have a private email before I spoke with him. And the Justice Department said I didn't do anything illegal. Everything else she did in that clip, sure signs of lies. Mike Slater Show, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater's America's greatest country in the world. San Diego's America's finest city. Happy uh, Saturday, of course. Thanks for being here. Uh, Mike Rowe here for the win, as always. Big Mike Rowe fan. And he picked up on a, a point of media bias here that I, I've missed. I've missed it, and, and they don't even... Uh, know they have the bias. The people who write this, the people who say this, I don't think it's intentional. It's just, it just comes natural. It's just, it's just their life. It's their experience and, and, and their elitism. Uh, and I think most people don't even know when they hear it or say it. He's talking about when the media speaks of Trump supporters and they look at polls, right? Who, who who supports Donald Trump? What, what are the demographics of the person who's black, white, age, gender, whatever? And they break down education level. And they always say that Trump is doing best with uneducated white males. Right? That's Trump's bread and butter. That's his core constituency. Uneducated white males. Now, what they really mean there, like with the technical definition of that is, People who didn't graduate from four year a four year college, but if you didn't graduate from a four year college, are you uneducated? Like that, so that that's not a one to one. That's not what that right. Like two different things. By the way, seventy percent of Americans don't have a college degree. Seventy percent do not. So this is what Mike Rowe, says. Mike Rowe says. He says, let's assume that Donald Trump is indeed popular among white men who did not graduate from college. The first question is, so what? 
Is this information newsworthy? Well, obviously, thousands of journalists think it is. The words uneducated white men now appear in hundreds of articles about Trump. But if this is truly important information, where were these reporters four years ago? Because in the last election, an even greater majority of African-American males who voted for President Obama had no college on their resume. Maybe I missed it, but I don't recall any headlines or articles that delved into Obama's popularity among uneducated black men. So if the media didn't care about the lack of college among black men supporting Obama, why do they care so much about the lack of college among white men supporting Trump? Moreover, when exactly did lack of college become synonymous with lack of education? We'll stop there for a second. Uh, let's let's chat about college here. So college, uh, fine, great. Go to college. I don't want to disparage it. I'm just telling you, I didn't learn anything in it. I learned how to learn, I guess. How to manage time, I guess. How to, because you know, given a lot of coursework, you got to get it all done, right? So there's something about the grit going of going through and, and graduating college. And at my school, you had to take five classes a semester, so it's like it's a lot of work, right? So you got to push through that. So I guess there's something in that. But I, I was no smarter four years after Yale than the four and then before I went, other than just four years of like any study anywhere, right? And did you know right now, if you have an iPhone, you you can take Yale courses for free. And you don't even, like, the app is already installed on your phone. I forget what it's called. iUniversity? I got it here. Hold on. iTunes U. iTunes U. So when you buy your phone or update it or whatever, there's an orange app. And it has the, the mortarboard, you know, graduation hat. Just click it and search Yale. And every Yale course that I took pops up. You can listen to every class and the syllabus is there and the reading list and everything. It's all right there for free. So it's right. You have it. It's just, I mean, I guess like a little initiative to do it and you can get the exact same education that I got for (laughs) $200,000. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, so... Right now, Yale's $65,000 a year, but you can listen to the professors I had and read all the books and, and do it for free. Now, you don't get the college experience, you know, like, like dorm living and college dining halls and athletics and stuff like that, which is awesome stuff. But when it comes to the education part, you can do it all right now. So if you didn't graduate from a four-year school, I guarantee if you didn't graduate from a four-year school, you could take these courses on your phone and get a better education than many people I know who did graduate from Yale, but never went to class. So you on your your own can actually go to more classes at Yale than some of my friends who barely ever went to class. There was one time, we uh, it's a long story, but we had these things called email wars. This was like kind of like new to email. And our swim team would just send out thousands of emails to everyone on the swim team. And we just, just goofing off, right? Like, we did guys play rock, paper, scissors against each other over email. So if you weren't following along as it was happening, you wake up in the morning and you'd get like 3000 emails. So we were in this class called strat tech strategy, technology, and war. It's a gut class. And, uh, we're sitting there big lecture hall 
And uh, there's like six swim team guys. And one of the guys walks in from the middle class. He walks in, sits behind us, and he starts flipping out at us. He's like, if you guys do that ever again, I'm going to blah, 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 blah. And we go, are you even in this class? He's like, yeah, it's my second day. And he gets up and he walks out. We were halfway through the semester. He never, he never went to class. <laughs> we didn't even know he was in the class. And the only reason he went was to, to yell at us for sending too many emails the night before. And then he showed up at the final and he passed it because he's super smart. Right? So the point is that you, you can go to class more than him. So I went to a four-year school. I am educated. You did not. You are uneducated. Really? Last week, I bought some decking from a uh, local lumber store here in San Diego. I'm building a floating deck in my backyard. I have never felt more uneducated in my entire life. So I call up these lumber, or I go to these uh, this lumber mill place, and they could not have been more helpful in answering all my dumb questions. They're like, well, you know, you know, what are, what are you going to do for your joist? And I was like, I, what's joist? I don't. Like, well, you got to attach the, the joist to the beam 16 inch on center. I don't know what a beam is. What 16 inches? Who? And they're like, oh, you got to get uh, your miter saw to cut this. And you need a certain type of carbon blade or whatever. Like, I don't need what. what like, I, is that the one you like pulled like the saw you pulled down and like. I went to Yale. I was wildly uneducated on that. So who's to say who's educated and who's not educated? Oh, no, I took a course, which, by the way, you can take right now from Joe as a Joanne Freeman. Hold on. I want to get this right. Uh, Joanne. Yeah, you can take a course from Joanne Freeman, Professor Joanne Freeman, who writes a ton of books on Alexander Hamilton and uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson. I took her a seminar class. There's like 15 people in the class. It was great. Uh, you can take that for free on your phone. <laughs> take it for free on your phone. And you can be educated on that. I am super educated on that. But I don't know what a joist is. I do now, but I didn't. So it's all like whatever. And then it's also all relative. I read an article the other day about... Uh, I, so I love anything dealing with nanotechnology. I don't... Like it blows my mind. A nano is one billionth like it's like atoms it's dealing with atoms i think a nanometer is three atoms next to each other not like your buddy adam like three atoms a-t-o-m-s three atoms your fingernails grow at one nanometer a second so think about that like think how often you you know cut your fingernails like your fingernails grow at one nanometer a second so nanometer 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 and you don't you don't know it right that's how small we're talking about. And scientists are working now at a nanometer scale. So I read this article about how now they are able to bend metal at a nanometer level. And the reason this is important is because this is the missing link in being able to have foldable screens. So you know in Harry Potter when they read the newspaper and the newspaper like changes as they're reading it? Imagine reading a newspaper that you can fold up but it's really like an iPad. You can fold it up like a piece of paper and crumple it up and fold it up and, and then open and and then open it and it, it's a it's a screen. But it feels like paper. That's crazy. 
So they found the missing component in being able to do that. So I went to Yale. I am wildly uneducated compared to the guys who are doing that stuff. So it's all relative and it's stupid. It does because it's so broad, so undefinable. It's a stupid term. You're uneducated. I am educated. Meaningless. Everyone listening now knows someone who has a four-year degree who's an idiot and knows someone who doesn't have a four-year degree who owns a business. I went to dinner last night with one of the sponsors of my local show who graduated high school. That's it. He owns this thriving business. He employs like 20 people. So who's, who's to say? What's going? Now, why do they do this, though? Why do reporters use the word uneducated when talking about people without four-year college degrees? Because they want to make it seem like anyone who supports Trump is dumb. And is stupid and is a redneck and hick and, and backwards rube. That's the point of that. I'll wrap up with Mike Rowe. He says, it's impossible for me to have this conversation and not think of my grandfather. Pop never made it to college. In fact, he never made it out of the seventh grade. But he never stopped learning or studying. He started as an electrician's helper, became an apprentice, a journeyman, a master electrician, a contractor, then a small business owner. Later, as an electrical inspector for the state, he was responsible for guaranteeing the safety of hundreds of buildings in Maryland, as well as all the rides at the Carnival Midway at the State Fair. He was a modest man of real intelligence, admired and respected by everyone who knew him. But today, he'd be right there with you, swelling out the ranks of uneducated white men. The media has minimized your work, insulted your intelligence, and ignored your contribution to civilized life. Just try not to take it personally. Just keep doing what you do. Be on the lookout for that now. I never picked up on that. But you'll hear it all the time now. Uneducated white males. <laughs> Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, since we're talking about education and degrees, why not? So one of the, uh, I don't know if it's its one of the main points on Hillary's speeches, but it's definitely up there. It's probably, I don't know, it's like top five, is going against for-profit colleges. She says we need to crack down on predatory schools. Predatory, that's a quote, we need to crack down on predatory schools schools well her husband bill clinton earned 17.6 million dollars from the world's largest for-profit education company and earned that is in massive air quotes earned 17.6 million dollars he was paid 17 imagine getting a paycheck 17.6 what that is so much money well, let me figure this out. So we got that. Let's do this. Um, hmm, Three hundred five million divided by twelve. No, let's do, let's do not twelve. Let's do uh, let's do that by uh, how many? Fifty-two, fifty-two, thirty. Just do thirty-six, twenty-six divided by twenty-six. That's a paycheck every two weeks of one hundred thirty-five thousand dollars. <laughs> Imagine getting a paycheck for one hundred thirty-five thousand dollars every two weeks for doing nothing. He was the uh, honorary chancellor, so it's not even like a close to a real thing. 
an honorary chancellor for the world's largest for-profit education company. The uh, They have schools all across the world, but their biggest school in America is called Walden University. I've never heard of it. Walden University. Now, why is Hillary against these uh, for-profit schools who are engaging in predatory, uh, pre- I don't know, they're predatory schools, I guess. It's because they're burdening people with debt. And we can't have that anymore. Uh, yeah, Walden University students have the second highest debt load of any school in the country. That's unbelievable. Think about that. Here she is on the campaign trail talking about cracking down on predatory schools. Meanwhile, she gets a fat paycheck, $17.5 million over five years from the worst of those schools by her definition. Unbelievable. Now, why does Walden University want to pay Bill Clinton all this money? Like, what's he, He's literally doing nothing, right? I mean, you're on a right chance or you're doing nothing. So why $17.5 million? What the heck is in it for Walden University? Student loans. So if a student goes to a college and they can't afford, can't afford it, they take out a loan loan from the federal government so the federal government gives the person this loan but they don't give the person the loan they give the money to the school the school walden university in this case takes the cash the person has to pay that plus the interest but the school walks away with the cash now so the more loans that the federal government hands out the more cash walden university gets and then they can keep raising tuition higher and higher and higher, and the federal government will keep coming in and paying higher and higher and higher loan principles, right? More and more, get lending out more and more money, and Walden just takes it. And it's the students who are burdened with the debt for the rest of their lives. So Hillary Clinton can't possibly care about that, about people who are taking on this massive debt, because she's getting paid by the people who benefit from it, the universities. Crazy. Now, I know we've done this many times before, but uh, let me do this again because it's important. And school's starting now, so might as well. Colleges are expensive because politicians try to make it more affordable. Colleges are expensive because politicians keep promising to hand out more and more loans to people. So in the past, let's say Walden could charge $10,000 a year. okay? Because that's probably what someone would spend and it's what people have in the bank and that's about what it should cost probably, $10,000 a year. Now they charge $50,000 a year. Why? Because Walden knows that the government's going to loan out the other forty, dollars The $40,000. But the person doesn't get the $40,000 loan. The school gets it. You see, see this works? Let, let, me, let me go a little slower here. There's one other. There's a step here. I sort of step. Skip. So my school, it, was, it cost about the same from 1701 when it was founded until about the 1970s. And that's precisely when the government came in and said, whoa, we need to make college more affordable. So let's say uh, your school costs $10,000. They know that people can afford that. And they know that people um, are able to spend about $10,000 on their own. So the government comes in and says, we got to make college more affordable. We're going to give everyone a $5,000 loan to go to college. So now the school says, well, all right. So we know people can pay ten grand of their own money. And they're getting this $5,000 loan. But we know they can spend ten on their own, so we're just going to charge 15000 They pocket the cash. So the government comes in and says, we've got to make college more affordable. Look how prices are going up. We're going to give a $10,000 loan now. 
Well, the school says, well, we know people can afford 10000 on their own, plus they're getting this $10,000 loan from the government, just free money for us. Uh, okay, now we're just going to charge tuition twenty grand. So people are outraged. And the government says, you got to vote for me. Politicians say, you got to vote for me. I'm going to make college more affordable. So they come in and they say, all right, well, now we're going to give everyone a $15,000 loan. And the school says, well, we know people can pay ten grand, and now they're getting this free fifteen grand. Our tuition is now twenty-five grand, and it goes up and up and up. That's how that works. The schools love it. I can't express this enough. The higher the, the it's administrators of the schools, they love these student loans. It's so funny. I had someone call into my local show the other day. He's a law school student, and he said, "Slater, I, I couldn't afford law school if it wasn't for the government giving me these loans." No, you got it backwards, buddy. You got it backwards. You could afford law school on your own if it weren't for all these government loans that make law school so expensive in the first place. Now, law school may be a different bit of a beast, same with med school and another, but I'll just do college. College is expensive. Don't, don't be grateful to the politicians for making it so you could afford college. Be ticked off at the politicians for making college so expensive you couldn't afford it on your own, like everyone has always done with summer jobs. So that's why Walden University is paying Bill Clinton $17.5 million for doing nothing. Because they, he, the Walden University wants this system to continue forever. Because they're just pocketing cash. Such a scam. Total, total scam. Mike Slater, so the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Later on the Blaze Radio Network. Sanders, let's keep it on uh, education here for a minute because we got the most recent test scores here in California. It's just a little bit of a local story, but um, I'm sure it's the same in your state too. So it's called the California Assessment of Student Performance and Progress. Now, uh, this is grades three through eight. Now, I'm not a huge supporter of these standardized tests. In general, I'm not a. Uh, I'm under no illusion that these tests are a great indicator of intelligence and certainly success later in life. But it's something. And when it comes to measuring students and performance, it's, it's what we got here. And there should be some correlation, really. And this is my main point. I'll come right out with it. These tests should, I mean, they're so easy. We should have it's, it's all screwed up. I can't, it's hard to even explain because our, our thinking of this is so messed up. I'm going to give you the, some numbers here, but these are the numbers. This is the percentage of kids in California who passed the test. Okay. I'm not, I'm not telling you the number of kids who have achieved mastery in these topics, but shouldn't that be the standard? Shouldn't the standard be mastery? This is how screwed up we are. So someone can get a 70. Let's say you get a third grader who gets a 70 on the math test. 70%. They're going to be pushed on into the fourth grade, but they only know 70% of what they knew in the last grade. How good do you think they're going to do in fourth grade math? Okay, so now they're going to know 60% of it. This is still passing. So now they know 60% of fourth grade math, and they're going to be moved on to the fifth grade. But they just have the Swiss cheese understanding of all the foundational math before them 
they're not going to magically get better. It's not like in 10th grade, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, I get it now. Like, they didn't learn how to add properly in third grade. Because our education system was designed during the Industrial Revolution, we've, at the time, created it like an assembly line. Oh, you're five, you're in first grade, you're six, you go to seventh or second grade, right? Or whatever, you go, go down the line, right? One year, and you, you learn all the same things at all the same times as everyone else based on your age. That doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense at all. You should only progress to the next topic once you've achieved mastery of the of the previous topic. You don't proceed to the next grade because you got older. Anyone can do that. Anyone gets older. The goal is to have mastery of a given topic. Otherwise, what's the point? What are we doing? If if you're not achieving mastery in a certain topic, what what, like, what good is that? So the numbers I'm going to give you here are totally screwed up because these are just passing. These are people who met the standards, not those who have mastered them. So everyone should pass the test. Like that should, that should be a no brainer. Like you got, you got to pass the test and really everyone should get like a 90% on the test because what do you, like, what's the point if you, if, if you get a 70 on the test, you should keep learning that thing until you do get a 90. And then when you do get above a 90, then you can move on to the next thing. But we're so screwed up. Anyway, here's the point. Uh, 48% of students met the English standards and 37% met math standards in California. That is atrocious. That is atrocious. That is embarrassing. We cannot go on like this. You can't go on. We're talking about reading and writing. Okay, the standards for a third grader is not Shakespeare, reading and writing. That's amazing. So you get these kids in third grade who can't read and write, move them on, pass 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 them on. Pretty soon they get in the 10th grade and they can't read or write and they drop out. If they don't drop out, we keep passing them and then we graduate them at the end of, the, at the end of their um, uh, senior year and they can't read their diploma. But we don't care. No one cares. No one cares. That's what ticks me off more than anything. I'm exaggerating a little bit because I know you care, but most of all, no one cares. Because if a majority of people cared, then the entire system would be upended by now. It wouldn't even look like this anymore. No one cares. If people cared about 37% of kids, I'll flip it around, 63% of kids, 63% of kids can't do math at grade level in California. If people cared about that as much as they cared about Ryan Lochte and what happened at a gas station in Rio, then things would have changed by now. But people, I like, I'm, I've never seen better journalism in my entire life than with Ryan Lochte. Right? There was a little bit of smoke. And then the next day, we had all this video camera footage from different angles at the gas station. And we were in interviews with the, the security guards at the gas station. And all. <laughs> it's like, what's going on here? Who cares? But 63% of the kids in the, in the state can't do math at grade level? And it's like, ah, whatever. That infuriates me. Now, uh, there's some racial disparities. Now, every news article writes about minorities. Okay, they talk about white, white kids, their grades, and then minorities. Now, there's a couple things about this. First of all, whenever you see in the media, they talk about minorities. Well, I should say in California, white people are the minority. There are more Hispanics in California than white people. 
Uh, Hispanics are a plurality of the state. 39% of California is Hispanic, which is fine. Like, whatever. 39% is Hispanic. 38% is white. So white people are a minority, but that, like, no one knows that. So, so, so that's point number one. Also, when they say minority, when it comes to education, they never mean Asian people. Like Asian people are never a minority. They're they're not, and Jews, Jews aren't minorities either, uh, because they're doing fine, right? So they're not a special interest group. So when they say minorities, they mean Hispanics and Blacks. That's it. Black people, Hispanic people, not not Asians. Even though Asians are fourteen percent of California, so that's how screwed up. So I'm reading this article. And I'm like, well, guys, I mean, you talk about minorities. You're not including Asians, which are the smallest, one of the smallest minorities. And then you are including Hispanics who are literally the plurality. So you're you're totally wrong here. But anyway. Uh, All right. So let's look at the racial disparity. 73% of Asian students met the English standard. 31% of black students. So there's a big chasm there. And then 67% of Asian students met the math standards, which is still terrible. And 18% of black students, which is like unfathomably bad. So what's up with that? What's up with that difference? So I got the answer. If you want to hear it. I mean, you can. I mean, I'll be called a racist. But. That's the answer. So I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm interested only in the truth and solving problems. So I'm just going to say it. It's uh, cultures. Now, there's, it's not a rule, but the general cultures of Asian families put, uh, have a, first of all, a strong family cohesion and focus on education. Generally, black families do not have those two things, do not put the focus on education. So it's, it's called generally cultures. Now, someone's going to send me an email and be like, I'm from a black family that stayed intact and focused on education. It's like, yeah, and you probably uh, have a good paying job and a strong family and, and a nice house and all the rest. Prove my point exactly. And you could probably point out an Asian family that came from a broken family and family didn't value education and is like, yeah, probably had low test scores. So you're proving my point. But no one wants to have that conversation because you get accused of being a racist. But how else do you explain how 73% of Asian kids met the English standard and only 31% of black kids? And 67% of Asian kids met the math and only 18% of black kids. How else do you want to explain it? As far as I'm concerned, there's only two ways you can explain it. All right, you're listening to two ways. Way number one, black kids are inherently dumber than Asian kids. Do you believe that? Do you believe that black kids have smaller brains than Asian kids? Do you believe that black kids are unable to learn as much as Asian kids? Just they're genetically inferior. Do you believe that black people are genetically inferior to Asian people and that they just cannot learn as much stuff? It's impossible. Black people are destined to be stupider than Asian people. Do you believe that? Of course not. That is absurd. That is actually a racist thing to say. To believe that one race is inherently superior to another. That is the dictionary definition of racism. But I don't believe that. No one believes that. So if it's not that, if it's not that black kids are inherently dumber, what is it? As far as I'm concerned, the other alternative is that there are cultural differences. Again, cultural expectations. Asian families stress education. Black families generally do not. 
That is not a racist thing to say because that's not talking about inherent differences. These are general cultural societal differences, not racist. It's the truth. And it's not racist because there's nothing inherent in a culture that makes it unable to change. And obviously it's not inherently true across the board. There are certainly black students who tested better than Asian students. And I guarantee you that's because that kid, the black kid, grows up in a family that values education. And the Asian student who did not get as good test scores grows up in a family that does not value education. That's it. That's the answer. (laughs) So when I say we need to strengthen our families, the people who criticize me for saying that, they know what it means. They just don't want to admit it. The people, when I say we need to strengthen family, I, I'll get an email or something on Facebook. People will be confused by it. What do you mean? Someone, I never forget when someone said, what do you mean by that? You, what do you want to ban divorce? Okay. If you don't understand what that means, you are actively deciding to not understand what that means because you know, when I say strengthen families, one aspect of that is valuing education within the family. Reading to your kids, not doing their homework, but setting a expectation that homework will get done, Uh, encouraging discipline in your studies. Tell kids that school matters and that learning matters and setting a culture of, of learning all the time and setting an expectation that good grades is important. Not everything, but it's important. That's part of strengthening families. That's part of having a culture of success in your family. On my local show the other day, I was asking for, for advice for a new dad. I'm going to be a dad in uh, six weeks. We had three guys right in a row. Boom, boom, boom. All of them called in independently at the same time and said their number one piece of advice is to read to your son in the womb. Read to him when he's still in the, in the womb. So they're, they're not even waiting till oh, yeah, you should read to your kid when he's in uh, you know five. No, no, six weeks to go. And they're saying I should read to my son which I have and will. That's a strong family who puts a value on education. So if you want to solve nearly all the problems in America, which I think, I think we do is why we're here, right? Uh, you solve this one right here. It's family and education. There's your answer. Mike Slater show the blaze radio network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the blaze radio network. Next generation of talk radio. This is Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders. I got some more politics coming up uh, in the next segment. I only got two, three minutes here, though. So I want to uh, do our final Olympics segment of these uh, real Olympics. First time we've chatted since the Olympics have ended. Um, I thought this really interesting. I, I saw a bunch of vignette stories of the first American athlete to compete in a hijab, right? She was that fencer girl. And NBC just fawning all over her and tripping over itself to tell us how wonderful this is and all the rest. And it's interesting, I guess, right? It's noteworthy, I guess, worth a mention. But the over-the-top the, over celebration of it, I thought was just a lot. So, turns out, and I 
I didn't know this. I had to find this out. If you want to talk about religion of uh, the, the competitors, the athletes, just look at the women's gymnastics team. Simone Biles. She's, Christian, she's the greatest, greatest gymnast ever. Christian. On her Twitter for years, she's written uh, different Bible verses and prayers on her Twitter. Gabby Douglas, who won gold four years ago, says she practices, she works out to a Christian music playlist and she prays when she's performing. She says, quote, faith plays a big role in my life. I, I don't know where I'd be without it today. My mom always exposed me and my siblings to being a Christian in the Bible. And I was watching back and looking at the Olympics. And my mouth is moving. That's me praying. Lori Hernandez, her personal motto, she, she was asked what her motto is. And she quoted Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Same with her Twitter feed, Bible verses all over. Uh, Maddie, the, the, one of the other girls uh, on the team, just the week before her Olympic started, she said, let go and let God. Because if it's in his plans for you, he will make it happen. Loved the message from church this weekend. <laughs> so, I mean, that's your women's gymnastics team. You got four or five of them are devout Christians. Allie Reisman's Jewish. I'm practicing Jewish too, but I mean, like that's noteworthy. No, it's something to mention. It's not only that. Then you got the two diver guys. Um, so David, uh, David Bodaya, he won four, he won gold four years ago on the 10 meter platform. And he said he had this incredible pressure of repeating his gold medal and it just crushed him. Well, he came back and he won silver in synchronized diving. So he and his partner are getting interviewed afterwards and, and they asked him, you know, how do you feel? And he said, uh, I said, it's amazing. I, uh, you know, four years ago, my identity was getting a gold medal, but now I know my identity is deeply rooted in Christ and I live for him and that's what's most important. And it let the pressure off of this event and I just came out, had a great time and we got a silver medal. You can't beat that. Right, like, and then you have the track. If you watch the track girls, the relay team, they would pray before and after every race. And it was all over the place. So, yeah, we hear all about this woman with a hijab. You're like, okay, whatever. But there was faith all over the Olympics. And it didn't, didn't get much of a mention. Just a heads up as to where we are. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. That is America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. I want to uh, share three stories here, three lies that I believe we are told uh, always and no one's questioning them. I want to start off with this uh, video here of a woman in Milwaukee who owns a food cart, as you'll hear. Uh, which has been robbed multiple times, and her house was recently burned to the ground by uh, the rioters there. Here it is, clip 1117. This was your house? house? Yes, my mother bought it maybe like about two years ago, and it was a city property, so we rehabbed it completely. Like, some of the stuff we got in there and did ourselves. So, yeah, it's just, (laughs) it's very devastating. Um, How did this happen? Was it just during the riots? Yeah. Lately, they've been doing a lot of um, vandalism. And, like, I guess this was about a month ago, they had vandalized the food truck, and I had called the police. 
and it's just been getting worse and worse in this neighborhood like starting with the fights in the park and then the shooting that took place it just kind of really set everything overboard for people so the tension has been high and I don't know I guess we just didn't expect it to hit us because we're regular working people like we really really worked hard on this food truck to get what to get everything in this house so it's just really difficult because like I said we're just regular hard-working people and it just seems really random you know that they would do something like this to us I have a daughter I have a grandson so it's just kind of crazy because all of us work together as a family to build this up so for this to happen it's like really a devastating blow what are your thoughts on what's been happening the past few days um i just think that it's uh tension it's been built up lately um it's it's inevitable what's happening in our community i do understand some of it some of it i don't I mean, I just think that the community needs to come together and we need better leadership in the community and things like this won't happen. You know, they'll be able to, these young people need to be able to focus their anger and their energy in a better direction. They need the leadership to really show them that this type of stuff, this vandalism, this disrupting your own community, because I mean, we live here, we work here, we're in the community every day, and it just seems like this is senseless. I mean, they need to really channel their frustration in a whole nother way. Now, she just mentioned a second ago the leaders, right? The leaders of your community have had 60 years plus. The last mayor of Republican mayor of Milwaukee was 1906. Okay, so your leaders have had 60 years to do all those things that you're talking about. So when Donald Trump says that for every one rioter, there's hundreds of people who just want to live in peace. He's talking about that woman right there. And for doing that, he's accused of being a white supremacist. And you are too. This is what's so wild to me. Like this That woman right there should vote for Donald Trump. Now, we can have a debate whether or not Donald Trump will actually bring law and order, but I'm just going based off of like the pitch, right? Trump is pitching himself as the law and order candidate. That's what this woman needs in her life. She doesn't need grit. She doesn't need determination. She doesn't need education. She doesn't need business savviness. She doesn't need uh, determination. Whatever. She, I think I said that. She, she's, got, she's got those things. She needs law and order to prevent people from tearing down what she's trying to build up. She needs people to cops to prevent people from stealing and breaking her stuff. Amazing. All right. So that's line number one, that if you support Donald Trump, you're a racist (laughs) because that's what that woman needs and her family. And dare I say everyone in Milwaukee, right? That's line number one, line number two, Got a Gallup poll here. It's about voter ID laws. Now, voter ID laws, uh, and I always think the Republicans need to come up with a better name for this because it just doesn't doesn't elicit much emotion, voter ID laws. Um, voter ID laws say that you need to prove who you are before you vote with a photo ID. Now, f- uh, for the life of me, I can't understand the left's argument 
that this is discriminatory or this is this is racist. The whatever argument someone makes that this is racist, the root of it is that black and Hispanic people are either incapable or too stupid or lazy to get some sort of photo ID. I don't, I don't, I don't know how they can get away with making that argument because any argument that I've ever heard about against proving who you are to vote, st- the root of it is, well, we can't have black people get a photo ID. I mean, that's that's racist. It's, they're incapable of doing that. I mean, huh? Really? <laughs> That's how little you think of people? Like, that's insane. Now, if you support voter ID laws, proving who you are with a photo ID, then you are anti-minority. I've heard such absurd rhetoric that photo ID laws to vote, it's the new Jim Crow. Right? It, it's like a poll tax. This is This is us white people preventing black people from voting. So if you support it, then you, you're, you're like the Klan. You support Jim Crow laws. Well, Gallup polls 77% of non-white Americans support voter ID laws. 77% of non-white Americans. So a non-white American who supports voter ID, which 77% of them do. And let's say that pulls off because I, I, I'm not a big poll guy, right? So, let, But let's say that pulls way off. Let's say it's 60%. Let's say it's 40% of non-white Americans. Are those non-white Americans anti-non-white people? Like, Are they racist? So why do we keep hearing? And more than that, why do we fall for the lie that if you do support voter ID, then you are racist? Because it's not true. Clearly, because these people aren't racist, are they? That'd be odd. All right, so that's line number two. Line number three. Last week or two weeks ago when Trump gave a speech that said we need a uh, some sort of ideological test for immigrants, and people wanting visas and stuff like that. Now, I don't exactly know what that means. He didn't go into great detail, but I think we kind of get that idea. We get the idea, right? We get the concept of sort of what he's talking about. The idea is you want to make sure that whoever's coming in understands what American values are and stuff like that. How we go about doing that, we can have a discussion, but we get the, the, the deal, right? So he gave that he gave that speech. He said we need an ideological test, and everyone flipped out on TV. Like, total, total, and that's un-American, blah, 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 all this stuff. It turns out 62% of all voters support that. All right, some sort of ideological test for immigrants. Now, the left is going to come back and say, if you support that, then you're anti-immigrant. You're a nationalist. You're a nativist. You're the alt-right. Uh, you're, uh, you're basically in the Klan if you support an ideological test for immigrants. It turns out 61% of immigrants support it. What? First, immigra- first uh, generation immigrants, 64%. Second generation, 64% as well. So there's a higher percentage of immigrants that support ideological tests for immigrants than native-born Americans. So are they anti-immigrant? Are immigrants anti-immigrant? Are are immigrants xenophobic? Because if you, a white person, are for an ideological test for immigrants, then you're xenophobic. You're afraid of foreigners. So... Are the foreigners who are now immigrants, are they afraid of foreigners? Because more of them support this than you. 
Are they bigots? <laughs> Two? We're all bigots? Or maybe it's just common sense. So do you see these three lies? They're lies. They're lies. They're, they're, they're mischaracterized. The truth. They're painting a picture that's not reality. Lie number one, if you're, if you're black, you're not supposed to support Donald Trump. Even though that's what this one woman in particular really needs is some law and order. And that's what Trump is pitching as, right? Law and order candidate. So law, uh, lie number one, if you're black, you're not supposed to support, not supposed to support Donald Trump. Lie number two. If you are for voter ID laws, then you're anti-minority. Even though 77% of minorities support photo ID laws. Hmm. Lie number three. If you want an ideological test for immigrants, you're anti-immigrant. Even though 64% of immigrants want an ideological test for immigrants, which is a higher percentage than white or the native people who want that. <laughs> like, what is going on? So I'll throw one more in here just for fun. Um, partial birth abortion. So if you are against partial birth abortion or late term abortions, which, by the way, again, my son's going to be born in six weeks. That, how, you, how you could ever think that this baby inside my wife's womb is not a human is mind-boggling. Like, like <laughs> you, are, you are turning off a part of your soul and your brain and your heart and your eyes and your hand when you put your, stu- your hand on my wife's stomach and you feel this little guy. He's not kicking. He is like jumping all over the place, going crazy in there. And for you, if you do that and you're like, ah, yep, not a person. Like, <laughs> whoa. Like, I, I, I can't, I can't even, I, like, I don't know what planet you're living on that you can do that to yourself. Yourself. That you can turn off the, these, the, what's obviously in front of you. Anyway, I'll say that for another day. Um, if you, it, it's, we're told that if you are against late term abortion, then you're anti woman. Right, you hate women. While sixty-eight percent of Americans think that partial birth abortion should be illegal. So the Democrats are on the wrong side of that issue. <laughs> They're in the minority, but still people vote for them because they've been able to mischaracterize who they really are and what they really believe and what they really stand for, and therefore what we really stand for. Everyone's got it backwards. Because if you believe in law and order, and you want photo ID, voter ID laws, and you want ideological tests for immigrants, and you want to ban partial birth abortion, you got to vote Republican. But people who do believe in those four things still vote Democrat, which proves my point that if things were framed properly, and, and I don't mean that passively like, oh gosh, I wish people would, like if we frame things properly and we explain them simply, most people, most people deep down, are conservative. I truly believe that. And this should prove it, among other things, too. 1 800, excuse me, 888 Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, Slater says. 
Um, yeah, so I read this headline the other day, but there was no qualifier to it. So the headline was, Trump, colon, I can win support of 95% of the black community. Now, if I read that and I said, what? I don't think he can win that much of the black But that's not really what he said. Actually, coming up in the next segment, I want to play a clip from Rachel Maddow. And, and my warning will be, and this is one of the rules of the Mike Slater show, never listen to anyone's argument when they quote something and don't finish the sentence that they're quoting. Okay, that, is, that, that means they are being deceitful if they don't finish the sentence. It's one thing to not include the context, like the sentences before or after, but to not even finish the sentence itself, like what are you doing? Well, they're trying to deceive you. So this is a context game as well. Trump said, I can support or I can win support of 95% of the black community. But what he really said is at the end of four years, I guarantee you that I will get 95% of the African-American vote. I promise you, because I will produce for the inner cities and I will produce for African-Americans. So um, it's not this election. He'll get 95% of the next next election if he wins, because he'll do such a good job as president, which is a fine argument to make, right? Um. So Hillary's pointing to this line here, and she has been, and she will, until the uh, the debate. She said, this is so ignorant, it's staggering. All right, so this is what tr- she's referring to. Trump said, once the election's over, they, Democrats, go back to their palaces in Washington. They do nothing for you. Remember it. So you got nothing to lose. Right? But they're just focusing on the you have nothing to lose part. One thing we know for sure is that if you keep voting for the same people, you'll keep getting the same result. My administration will go to work for you like no administration has done before. So what have you got to lose? You're living in poverty. Your schools are no good. You have no jobs. 58% of your youth is unemployed. What the heck do you have to lose? At the end of four years, I guarantee you, I will get 95% of the African-American vote. Ba 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 ba. And the Democrats will not produce. And all they've done is taken advantage of your vote. I've seen nothing wrong with this sentence. Uh, it was Stephen A. Smith from ESPN a couple years ago said he wishes that every black person in America would vote Republican in the next election. And people flipped out on him. But again, context. He wasn't saying that because he agrees with Republicans. He said that because he realizes that the Democrats take the black vote for granted. And he said, we should vote for Republican just so they don't take us for granted anymore. Just so they know that they can't count on getting 100% of the black vote without doing anything that helps black people. So let's vote Republican one time so they give a little kick in the butt so that next time they'll actually do something for us to try to earn our vote. That was Stephen A. Smith's point. You know, we played that clip, I'm sure we did last week, of uh, the rider in Milwaukee saying he wants uh, wants white people to give more money or whatever. Right? We need more white people's money. They're not giving us enough of their money. Black Lives Matter a week or so ago in Memphis. Their goal was to shut down Graceland because it was Elvis week, the anniversary of Elvis's death. And they were complaining that Graceland opened up. Uh, by the way, you got to go to Graceland. Don't ever go to Memphis. Memphis is a pit. But I used to live like an hour away. Don't ever go to Memphis. It's horrible. But Graceland, got to go to Graceland. So swing by Graceland and then go hang over in Nashville. Anyway, uh, Graceland opened up a big new hotel and it got a lot of tax breaks. And they're complaining that that their communities don't ever get government money like Graceland does. So they're they're upset about that. So they're going to go shut down 
Graceland during Elvis week. And I, I hear that and I'm thinking, gosh, if you really have a chip on your shoulder, okay, that's a, that's a qualifier. If you really have that chip on your shoulder, wouldn't you want to prove everyone wrong without help from the white man? If you really feel that the white man's keeping you down and not giving you enough, wouldn't you want to succeed in spite of us, in spite of that, in spite of the government? If you really feel like you're being kept down, if you really feel like you're being kept down, then the last thing you would do is ask for help from the people who are keeping you down, right? Wouldn't you, even if the government offered you money or offered you help, wouldn't you say, no, we don't need it? We don't need it. We don't want it. We'll succeed without your pity, without your charity. Thank you very much. So what I don't understand, wouldn't you want, if you were living in the inner city, wouldn't you want that to be the safest place? The most prosperous place in town. The place where everyone wanted to be. Right, I imagine, so, so the... One of the, the rough area in San Diego is called City Heights. Right? It's the dangerous area. You don't want to go to City Heights. But if you lived in City Heights, wouldn't you want it so, let's say one of my friends is, is moving to San Diego. And they're saying, Slater, where should I move? Like, we, we're going to look at some houses. Where, where would be a nice place to live? Wouldn't you want to make City Heights so nice that I and everyone else would say, oh man, you, you really want to go to City Heights. City Heights is the place to be. And Lincoln High, Lincoln High is the best school in the county. Now, right now, Lincoln High is the worst. You got about 13, 15% of kids can uh, read at grade level. High school, 15%. It's only that. 15. So it's the worst school. Wouldn't you want it to be the best if you grew up in that area? You'd want it to be the best. You want everyone to be knocking on the door to get in there. So what are you you doing? So Trump says you got nothing to lose. I mean, Mike Slater Show, spread the word. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. There's two funny videos I want to share here. Um, this first one, I, I I don't know how to pronounce it. The, the, the Dolmio Pepper Hacker, I guess we'll hear it in the commercial here. It's a it's a pepper mill, right? Like, go to a restaurant and they get a salad. Like, Would you like some pepper? Say when, right? They're pepper mill. Right? And uh, the thing with this pepper mill, and I'm assuming it, it actually is a pepper mill too, but at the top of it, there's a button. And you press the button and it turns the Wi-Fi off. So... That's the product, and they, they make this commercial, and it's an undercover video of all these families around dinner time, and the kids are all in their iPads. So when they're on their iPads, just dead to the world, they're just zombies looking at staring at the screens, right? The adults in the room start switching things out, right? They start changing uh, the flower pot, they change the, the pictures on the wall, stuff like that. Uh, then... Uh, they change each other, right? So so the mom will open up the cupboard and another mom will pop out 
right? And then the real mom goes and hides, and the new mom has a different hair color, and the kid doesn't notice. And the dad will be replaced by an Asian dad, and the brother is replaced with a brother who's 15 years older and sits down right next to the kid in the iPad, and the kid doesn't even notice. And then they press the button on the pepper hacker, and the, the iPad turns off, or the Wi-Fi turns off. So they stop playing their game, and, uh, and then they look up, and everything's changed. Enjoy this commercial. It's funny. In this experiment, we're going to test just how absorbed these kids are with their devices. I'm talking about that kid, those kids there, that kid, and definitely him. And, well, not her, she's his mum. So we're going to swap things about a bit. Flowers first. That's a safe starting point. A family photo here is exchanged for a rubbish painting right behind him. He still hasn't noticed. Over to the other house now. Who's coming in here? Well, it's a Viking. And he puts a picture of a zebra on the wall. Now this is a classic mum swap. Look at this, look at this. Lovely. Here's another one. Smashing! How long's she been crouched under there, I wonder? What do you think's going to happen next? Oh, the sister's off. Man comes in with a rubber tree. He doesn't notice any of these things. A new sister's arrived behind the football helmet. This sister has legged it. And here comes a little fellow with a tiny tree. Nice. The brother leaves. And in comes a massive new brother. We need something more radical to get this dinner back on track. Let's disconnect the Wi-Fi with the Dolmio Pepper Hacker. Boom. Hang on. Who's that? Who's that fella? Who are you? Who are these people in my house? Yep, he's seen enough and he's off. I don't blame you, fella. He's off as well. Sensible. Oh, there you go. Everyone's having a good old chuckle about it. And now, with the help of Dolmio, the family can get around the table and enjoy dinner together. That's a, the dad walks in, or the dad walks out, and a Viking walks in. <laughs> a Viking walks in, and the kid doesn't notice. The big guy dressed up like a Viking. Hilarious. It's so true, though, right? I mean, you know, if, if that's not your family, you've seen this before. Right? You've gone out to dinner and you see four people around a table all on their phones. It's amazing. Um, I've been meaning to play this clip of Louis C.K. actually for a long time, uh, but I, I thought this might as well be uh, as good a time of any. 674. I decided I don't want to be on the Internet anymore. I don't like the way it feels anymore, especially on my, in my hand, the devices. I don't like this thing that I stare into this thing. And uh, it just, it makes me feel upset. And I look at things that I know are going to upset me. You know, I guess I just like the hit from going, oh, yeah. You know, like I'll go on my computer and I'll like Google an image that I don't want to see. So then I see a whole wall of it. Yeah. You know, like big nails in them. Sir, you're going to have to leave the library. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, but so, uh, anyway, so I decided I don't want to. And also, she just I have, quit the internet. Wow. Well, I have kids, uh, two daughters, and, and I uh, sometimes I'll be with my daughter, and she's mm-hmm. talking to me, and we're talking, and then bling, my phone goes bling, so I'll just go down like this. And my kids are nice people, so they just wait. Uh, but I started to realize a few things. One thing I realized in life is that you can't just go by how a person reacts to you. You can't just go like, oh, it's all right with her. Right. Because she's my kid. But she dies inside every time I do this. Because, right, because she thought she had a real connection yeah. with you. And then something glings. Yeah, I mean, that happens to you. Like, if you're talking to a person and then they just go like this, they, yes. just, they just disappeared. Yeah. It's a horrible abandonment. 
And when it's your father, just like, uh-huh, is that right, honey? <laughs> it's just horrible. But she sits it out. She's okay with it. And right. I'm like, she seems all right. And then I started to grow up and realize, no, I have to think beyond what the look on her face is right. that she's soldiering on with. Right. I have to think about what I'm doing to this kid. And, um, and I just didn't like this feeling, so I started to put it away. I started to just say, I gave my daughter my phone, and I said, make a restriction code and lock me out of the Internet. It's supposed to be the other way around. Yes. It's supposed, it's supposed to be to a lock- parental yes. code yeah. to keep your kid off the Internet. But I had my daughter give me a code. She has the code. I don't know it. And so I can't be on the Internet on my phone, and I did it on all my devices. And it's been about a month I haven't Googled anything. I just go up and walk out to people and ask them questions and stuff, uh, which is more fun, too. Yeah, but while you're talking, uh, then they go, they look away. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, which is fine. You lose them. That's right. But so so anyway, I started reading uh, books again, and I was on vacation with my daughter, and I read Pride and Prejudice, and we would just sit there, and I would just read. You read Pride and Prejudice? Yeah, I never read that. I never read anything. No, I've never read Pride and Prejudice. That's good. (laughs) But... uh, Wow. I mean, they're, well, cra- they're crazy. You know, come on. Just add, tell them you like him. It's annoying. Yeah. But, uh, you know, like 12 years. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, I wonder shall he approach me once again. Just tell him. Just go up. Hey, you're cute. You know? Yeah. But uh, anyway, so then I did this for a month. And then my daughter, this is why I asked Frank to go get. This is a note that my daughter wrote me. She's 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And right before I flew out here, she wrote me this note, uh, which is messy. But she's 10. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not criticizing her. I'm just saying she's... <laughs> yeah. But it could be neither. It could be. It could be. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. She says, Dear Daddy, I love you very much. But, uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, that... Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, also, I am really proud of you for cutting yourself off from the internet and reading an awesome book. I want you to know that what you did means a lot to me, and I really enjoy seeing your pleasure in not constantly being on devices. Also, thanks for the trip to Mexico. I really needed that. So, <laughs> I just... That's a great well, reward that you got. Yeah. yeah, I think people should know that it has an impact on your kids if you stop looking at the stupid Internet. Right. All right. Sorry. But if you're... <laughs> no! I thought that was a nice message. Yeah, Man, that's great. Um, it's amazing when your kids see you do that. So, so again, we're gonna have a son in a couple of weeks, but I got a little nephew, and when he was a baby, just crawling around, um, his parents, my brother, played a, a song off the phone, and kid would not stop trying to get the phone because two things. First, for him, that's where the sound came from, right? So, like, I want it, but also he'd see them on the phone all the time they like work like nothing like they weren't like zoning out on their phone playing pokemon go or whatever but like just on the phone and like the kids want to do that too and that's that's just it's it's if nothing else it's new right so we don't really know what that means yet. i mean i think i do know the effect that it has i think you do too um but we got to figure out how to how to do this right and and i don't even know if there is i think you just got to ditch it Read an article the other day about a uh, a guy who used to be a policy advisor to the British Prime Minister, and now he's the co-founder of a tech startup. I mean, that's an important detail of this story. He's a co-founder of a technology startup company. He doesn't own a cell phone. He's got a landline. Now, I know a lot of people, a couple of friends of mine actually don't don't have an iPhone or something. They have a flip phone, like an old school flip phone. This guy has no phone. 
And people asking the exact same thing you're thinking right now. How do you live? He's been phone free for three years now. And he said it's so odd that groups call him on his landline, of course. And they call him up and, and they, they ask if he can speak to their group and tell your story. Can you tell your story to the Rotary Club? And he said, like, how odd that not having a phone is a story worth telling. Right? For all of history, no one ever had phones. And then a few people did. And now it's so odd to not have one. It's like, how do you do it? This happened very quickly. So it started for him because he was riding his bike on a week-long cycling trip. And uh, well, I'll read. He says, it struck me that a week had gone by without having my phone. And everything was just fine. Better than fine, actually. I was more relaxed, carefree, and happier. I felt incredibly, uh, this incredibly strong sense of just thinking about things during the day. Being able to organize those thoughts in my mind. Noticing things. And people ask him, what if something happened to your children? And he says, well, how does your parents manage? He says, I'm not leaving my four and eight-year-old alone to suffer in the wilderness. They're with adults at all times. So why do we need a phone in this relationship equation? They're, they're, they're fine. Now, he does admit there's some things he can't do because he doesn't own a phone. Uh, notably, he can't check things. Do you notice we're always checking things? We're checking. How many people listening to this at the same time or in the midst, in the sometime within this five minute checked something? Did you check something on your phone? We're always checking things. We're checking all the time. Checking emails, checking messages, checking news, checking weather, checking Instagram. We're always checking. Check, check, check. Everything's checking, checking things all the time. What is that? Why are we checking things all the time? It's weird, right? He says, but just in terms of our basic humanity, I find the idea that we should all be connected and contactable at all times, not just bizarre, but menacing. We used to think of electronic tags as a way of restricting a criminal's liberty. We can keep them out of jail, but still keep track of them. It seems that now everyone is acquiescent through their phone in electronically tagging themselves, incarcerating themselves in a digital jail where there's no such thing as true freedom or independence or solitude or privacy. Gosh, I heard a sentence the other day. I don't think I can um, repeat it properly. It was so profound and good. Uh, let me let me try. It was something like, in the day, our biggest fear was being watched. And today, people's biggest fear is that no one's watching. Ooh, something like that. That's pretty close. It's not my own thought, though. Someone else said it. Right, so back in the day, our biggest fear was that you're being watched. Today, our biggest fear is that you set up a webcam, you put up an Instagram account, you put up a web, whatever, and, and no one's watching. That's our biggest fear. Isn't that odd? Weird. I'll never forget, we, buddies of mine, we went up to uh, Mountain, Palomar Mountain, spent a weekend up there, and uh, it was late at night. We got up to the top of the mountain. Our cell phones didn't work, uh, so we all went right to the front office and asked for the Wi-Fi password. So we're all standing around, like six of us standing around, typing into our phones the Wi-Fi password. It was a weird Wi-Fi password. It had like capital letters and symbols and like a hashtag and capital letters in weird places. And there was like a zero, but was it an O or a zero? We don't know. So we're all typing in different iterations of what this could possibly be and no one's getting it. Did you get it? Did you get it? You know, I didn't get it yet. Wait, is it a zero or is it? No, it's not working. And with like five minutes of this, we all looked up and said, well, why do we even want our phones? We're like, we're all right here. What, like who, this, I mean, 
what what can our phone give us that we don't now have? Like we are connected. Like the point of the phone is to connect people, but here we are. Isn't that strange? Here we are in this great place with great friends for a weekend, and we're already trying to connect someplace else. You know, gratitude is one of the most important things in life. You can't be grateful if you don't live in the moment. And you can't live in the moment if you're looking at your phone. 1-800-988-900-3393. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. I want to play this one clip of uh, Kellyanne Conway. That's uh, one of Trump's new um, campaign coordinators or whatever. And uh, she's on the Rachel Maddow show. Here it is. That is not everybody. That's not every continent. But does does that statement rescind the earlier statement? Does that mean that, I mean, it was very clear what he said in December and he put it in writing, right? A total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. It was very clear. Is that now no longer operable as the statement of the Trump campaign? Should we see this new statement about countries that have a history of exporting terrorism? Should we see that as supplanting that earlier statement? So uh, Mike Slater show rule. Uh, we've stated this before. Be careful of anyone who quotes something without finishing the sentence. So bad enough if you don't provide the sentence and sentences before and after a quote to give it context. But if you don't even finish the actual sentence you're quoting, that's bad news. And Maddow, it's even worse because when she read that quote, it was on MSNBC, they had the full quote on the screen. So you could read the full quote, but she wasn't reading it. Because if she read the full quote, then there would be no confusion and the full quote is total, a total complete shutdown of Muslims entering in the United States until uh, our country's representatives can figure out what's going on. Now, when Trump made that quote, I happened to be on Fox and CNN a bunch that week for whatever reason. And uh, I said, guys, people were so outraged by it. I said, guys, there's 73 people who work at the Department of Homeland Security who are on the terror watch list. And people freaked out and said, whoa, 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 whoa. Eventually, they're like, they're not on the Department of Homeland Security. They work for TSA. I'm like, well, okay, TSA is a part of Homeland Security. But still, like, that's even, like, worse in a way. So let's figure out what's going on. Then we can move on from there. Anyone who is confused by that is choosing to be confused by it. And if they want to have an argument about it, the only way they can really do that is to not finish the sentence. (laughs) Ridiculous. Hey, Slater Radio on Twitter. Search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. We'll hang out all week, and we'll be back on next Saturday. Labor Day, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.